read the first <clears throat> six verses, Psalm number 135. Read them together, shall we? And we'll pause at the punctuation marks, so each verse in unison. Psalm 135, verses 1 through 6, the Word of God says, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord, praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We are grateful to be in your house this morning. We have uh, some that have been able to attend lately because of illness and injury and other things, but we're grateful we have the health and strength to be here. We pray that you administer to each one of us, uh, Lord, those that are visiting, those that are regular attenders, those that watch online, we pray that the Spirit of God would minister to each one and that you'd accomplish your work in us, save those that need saving, encourage those that are discouraged, strengthen the weak, help all of us to be more like thee. Give me the words to say at this hour and then bless our fellowship following the service pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I love the book of Psalms. I'm currently in a Bible reading program where I'm reading the book of Psalms multiple times this year in addition to all the other reading. And I just read the book of Psalms in its entirety within the last week or so. And then I also read one each day. And so it's just love getting the book of Psalms, just getting that deep down within us, a lot of history. Uh, but the Psalms deal with the human condition as much as any book in the Bible, really getting down to where people live, the emotions that we live with, the struggles, the afflictions, the difficulties, and how God wants to work in our lives through these things and help us through all of them. And then the last part of the book uh, talks a lot about praising the Lord. Of course, you see... Uh, praising the Lord throughout the entire book of Psalms, especially if you ever get down in the doldrums and you want to praise the Lord a little bit, but you're you, uh, looking for reasons to do so. You know, sometimes we get under the circumstances and, and uh, we need a little help. The last five chapters of the book of Psalms, six really, 145 to 150, nothing but reasons to praise the Lord. And so I love that portion of the book too. <clears throat> but here we talk about Praise ye the Lord, the psalm starts with. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. So we see the direction to praise. We see we're supposed to praise his name. Then who's supposed to praise? The servants of the Lord. And that would be us if we are born again. Then he says, if you stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord. Uh, for the Lord is good. So if you're in church, praise the Lord. And you know, we've got a lot of reasons to praise the Lord. And then he tells us why we should praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Isn't God good? You know, Satan always tries to make God the bad guy. 
But the truth is, God's the good guy. He's the hero of the story. He's not the bad guy. All the way back in the Garden of, of uh, Eden, Satan telling Eve, God's hiding something from you. He's keeping something good from you. God's a bad guy. I'm just trying to help you out. Satan always comes to you as the helper, the angel of light, and making God the bad guy when the exact opposite is true. We can praise him because he's good. We can sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. And boy, I appreciate coming to church, and we use the old traditional hymns and songs here to praise and honor the Lord, and that's good and right, and it's pleasant, and it helps our hearts. And he says, verse 4, we praise him for the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Of course, Jacob is synonym for the nation of Israel, and then he mentions Israel, and then we learn the New Testament through them because Christ came through them. We are chosen as well, and we are the people of God. But then look at verse, verses 5 and 6. We find uh, the, the, the point of the message this morning, and this is a great reason to praise the Lord. Verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. See that little g? God's the God, big G God. And then there are all these things that are called God throughout the world in different cultures and, and places, and they are little g gods. There's only one real God, so he is the God of gods. He is above all gods. And then verse 6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and the deep places. And verse 6 reminds us that God is sovereign. Sovereign. So the word sovereign just simply means that God is reigning above all. He doesn't answer to anybody. God does what he wants, when he wants, why he wants, how he wants, because he wants, and he doesn't answer to anybody. God is sovereign. Now that's good news for us here today. Because as the world is spiraling out of control, and as we see the craziness of this life, we often wonder, what's the answer? What can we hold on to? Where can we find strength? What, what's my foundation? You know, we see the foundations of America being shaken, the foundations of society shaken, the foundations of morality shaken. What has always been considered truth is now being told, no, that's not true, and truth is just whatever you want it to be. All of these foundations are being shaken and you and I can feel like that we are are being shaken with it where can we put our feet where can we find this solid ground what can we believe in what can we trust in how can we have any hope for the future the question on a lot of people's minds today now today many unbelievers contend that we humans are gods little g we are the height of human evolution, that we are the height of everything on earth, and that we get to do whatever we want without any accountability to anyone. Dear friend, if you follow that logic through, if humans are gods, then we're all in trouble. We're all in trouble if this is all there is. On the other hand, and on the other end of the spectrum, some unbelievers assert that every action is already predetermined, and we are like robots following a script. This is called determinism. 
that we really have no free will, that there's no choices to make, that everything's just kind of determined. So on one edge of the unbelieving spectrum, you have the word God's, we can do what we want, nobody's going to tell us what to do, and then when we die, we die. It's all over. On the other end of the spectrum, whether they call it fate or some type of other religious philosophy, they say everything's already determined, we're just like robots, we're not accountable for our actions, we're not accountable for our choices, it doesn't matter what you think, everything's just going to go the way it's supposed to, and we are like victims, we are like pawns in some cruel game. Think about those two ends of the spectrum. Both philosophies ultimately end with the dreadful concept of nihilism. Nihilism basically states that life is meaningless. Think about that. There's a lot of unbelievers out there that just think this life is meaningless. It means nothing. You live, you die, it means nothing. Nihilism is, there's different classes of it and and sub-philosophies. But basically, they reject generally accepted truths or fundamental aspects of human existence, such as objective truth. They would say there's no objective truth. There's really no knowledge. There's no morality. There's no values. There's no meaning to life. So Whatever end of the unbelieving spectrum you find yourself on or anywhere in between, they all point down to this nihilistic endpoint. And a lot of people believe these these concepts that sound good in a classroom or they might sound good absolving uh, someone of of responsibility today but if you follow that down to their logical end it's a dark dark road the passion i were out soul winning yesterday we were knocking on doors and uh, we saw a lady walking her dog and tried to give her a track she said no i'm an atheist kept walking and so we talked for a moment about what a dark existence that is. And, and I don't have a lot of respect for atheists because to say you're an atheist means that you are intellectually dishonest. To say that there is no God is a statement of faith because you can't prove it. I have more respect for an agnostic who says I'm not sure if there's a God than I do someone who makes a religious statement there is no God. And so we talked about that for a moment. About a half hour later, we were knocking, we were on a side road, we were knocking doors on, back on the main road, and we knocked on her door. <laughs> and uh, she came back and answered the door, and Brother Pash was talking at that time. And so we talked to her again. And while we were walking away, I should have said, I told Brother Pash, we should have told her, hey, God's after you. He's not letting you get away this easy. You know, we, we didn't know where you live, but God knows where you live. But um, what a terrible way to live. But even some of the most prominent atheists in the world today, I mean, they lecture about atheism, they debate about atheism. When they're asked if they want to live in the world they describe, most of them will honestly say, I don't want to live in that world. One prominent atheist was asked, would you rather live in an atheist nation or a Christian nation? Would you rather your neighbors be atheists or Christians? And he said, without even a thought, he said, oh, I'd rather them be Christians because of how they treat one another, how they treat people. Isn't that interesting? 
Because those who are honest about these ungodly philosophies, they all lead to a place of unbelievable darkness. Nobody wants to live in that world. And it may sound good when you're sitting in a college classroom, or it may sound good whenever, whenever life is, is going great. But let me tell you, it, it's a bad way to deal with death. It's hard to stand in front of a casket with those kinds of ideas. It's hard to be in the hospital told that you don't know if you're going to make it through the week with those types of ideas. One man said Christianity is a good way to live and a better way to die. Dear folks, these ungodly philosophies gaining traction today, they only lead to one deep, dark, desperate place. That's why Christ is the light of the world. He's the hope for humanity. And what the world needs to know here is that there's still a God in heaven and that there's still a God who's in control of everything. And although it seems like everything is spiraling out of control and the world's just, just, uh, uh, just going down the drain, uh, one man said, you know, it's like we're just circling the drain. If you've ever seen a drain kind of empty slowly, he said, we're just circling the drain. Either God's going to send revival or it's all going to come to an end. And that's a pretty good estimation of things. Either God's going to send revival or it's all going to come to an end. These are the last days. But either way, folks, our responsibility is to believe in God and preach Christ. That's our responsibility. And that's what the world needs. So surely we can find better comfort than these horrible, ungodly philosophies. Listen, folks, government's not the answer. Have you figured out yet that when government tries to fix something, they usually break it worse? Communism's not the answer. Have you looked around the world? Have you studied history that in the last 120 years, communism is responsible for over 100 million deaths? Think about that. All these isms are not the answer. More education is not the answer because if you don't start with the basic knowledge of God, everything else is built on a faulty foundation. The only answer for the world is to turn to God. And that's where we find true comfort. And that's where we find real hope. We can only find strength, stability, and hope when everything's falling apart. When we look to a God who is higher and more powerful than us. I thank God I'm not God. If I was God, we'd all be in trouble. In fact, we wouldn't even last probably out the next minute. I'd mess everything up. I'm glad you're not God. I'm glad there's somebody bigger than us and stronger than us who knows what he's doing and can be trusted. See, some people are worried about turning to God because they don't know who God is. Which God are you talking about? Are you talking about some version of the Hindu God? Are you talking about the Muslim God? Are you talking about the Hare Krishna God? Are you talking about some type of... Taoist universal force? Are you talking? What are you talking about? Well, the Bible defines who God is. And we can take comfort in the fact that God is kind and loving. About that. We'll turn back to our portion of Scripture here. Look at Exodus chapter 34. We're talking about God as sovereign. Exodus chapter 34. God revealing himself to Israel and, and to Moses. God explains who he is to Moses. 
in Exodus chapter 34, we see verses 5 through 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So he said, Moses, let me tell you who I am. Verse 6, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Isn't that a blessing? We don't have a God up in heaven that's just waiting to punish us and that's just angry all the time and is just mean and hard and oh no no he is a gracious God he is a kind God he is a long-suffering God he's abundant in goodness and truth look at verse 7 keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin isn't that a blessing aren't you glad that God will forgive our iniquity our transgression and our sin those are three different words for sin iniquity is that part of us Yes, it's sin, but it's, it's those sins that we justify. Those sins that we say, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it because that's iniquity. And God forgives our iniquity. And then transgression, that's where God says, do not trespass. And we say, I'm going to do so anyway. I'm going to step over the line. See, God doesn't just forgive accidental sin. He forgives willful, stubborn You know why? Because we are all willful and stubborn at times. And then sin simply means to miss the mark. Sometimes we're not trying to sin. We're not trying to do wrong. We're just, we're going to miss the mark. God forgives all sin. This is what the verse is saying. God forgives everything that is called sin. He's willing to forgive that. Isn't that a blessing? And we learn that he forgives that through Jesus Christ, the the promised Messiah. Oh, but wait, we learn more about God. Look at the middle of verse 7. And that will by no means clear the guilty. Wait, God says, I'm willing to forgive. I'm kind, I'm long-suffering, I'm full of goodness and truth, and I'll forgive anybody, but I will not forgive the guilty. What's God saying? Don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Don't mistake my love for a license to do whatever you want. Because God says, I will hold you accountable for your sin if you don't accept my path of forgiveness. He goes on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. Have you ever figured out that when a, when a dad goes bad, the children suffer? And then sometimes the grandchildren suffer? It's called generational sins. They just pass them on from one generation to the next, to the next. And God's telling us about himself here so we know that he can be trusted He's kind, he's loving, he's abundant goodness and and truth, gracious, long-suffering, and he will forgive any and all iniquity, but he will judge the guilty. That's our God. By the way, I wouldn't want it any other way. 
God is just. That means he has to hold everybody to the same standard. And the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that he hath concluded all to be under sin because we're all sinners. That means all of us deserve hell. But he also made a way of salvation for everybody. So anybody that accepts his son, Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, can be forgiven and go to heaven. But everybody that rejects Christ will have to suffer for their own sin. That's true equity. That is holding everybody to the same standard. And I'm glad about that. So this God that we have, this God who's high and holy and above us all, he can be trusted. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 34. Turn to a few books toward the middle of your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 32, another great verse that talks about who the Lord is. You don't have to be worried that God's in control if you know who God is. A lot of people have these different ideas about who God is and they, they take what they've heard here and what they've heard here and they kind of have this mishmash, patchwork idea of God in their, their mind. And boy, you ought to probably be afraid of that monstrosity. I used to have one myself. But boy, when you go to the Bible, God says, let me tell you exactly who I am and what I expect. What a blessing that is. So we find Deuteronomy chapter 32, look at verse 4. He is the rock. Amen. He's our safe place. His work is what? Perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. For all his ways are judgments. He doesn't make mistakes because all his ways are judgment. He lives by principles. He's, he's just a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. This God can be trusted not only because he's gracious and kind and loving, long-suffering, not only because he holds everybody to the same standard, but because he's perfect. And he's a safe place to run. He's that rock where we can run to when the floods of life begin to rise and the storms begin to swirl. We run to the rock that is higher than I. This is the God who is in control. This is the God who's Sovereign. Joshua 3.11 reminds us, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over you before into Jordan. So the, the Bible calls this God the Lord of all the earth. Why? Because he is the Lord of all. He can do what he wants, when he wants, why he wants, for how long he wants, and he answers to no one. Now that would be bad if you or I were in that position but the perfect, holy God of heaven is in that position, and we can have full faith and trust in Him. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. Now, some of you might be asking, oh, boy, if God's in control, then why are all these bad things happening? And that's a great question. You'll have to come back tonight to get the answer. <laughs> I've got five things that I wanted that, that are actually part of this sermon Five questions about the sovereignty of God. Well, if God's sovereign, what about this? If God's sovereign, what about this? But I didn't want the sermon to be an hour and a half, so we're going to split that off and, and put those into tonight. And you're going to learn how to deal with the, the five perceived difficulties of the sovereignty of God. 
But the sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things. We think about our text verses, Psalm 135, 5 and 6, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord hath pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places, God is sovereign. Now turn to Daniel chapter 4. We'll look at another portion of Scripture. When you come to this church, our commitment to you is that we're going to show you what the Bible says. We're not just going to argue about one philosophy versus another. We go to the Word of God, inspired, preserved Word of God to help us understand what God wants us to know. Daniel chapter 4. This is a fascinating portion of Scripture. You can look at it later. In God's sovereignty, there were several main kingdoms that arose over time. The Greeks, the Medes, the Persians, the, the Babylonians, the Romans. There these major kingdoms that at the time literally took over the known world, much of the known world. And God in his sovereignty would allow these nations to rise up. And one of them was Babylon. Babylon was known as one of the great wonders of the world, a fascinating, a powerful, rich, far beyond the rest of the world in their arts and, and sciences and different things like that. I mean, just really a, a, an amazing place to learn about. They had some serious issues. And one of their big issues was God had used them to punish his own people when they were disobedient. But one of the great kings of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was really proud. He was really high and lifted up. I mean, he thought he was the stuff. He prayed to all the wrong gods. He tried to make people, matter of fact, the three Hebrew children, he tried to make them worship one of the images that he had set up, and God supernaturally preserved them. But Nebuchadnezzar, he, he thought he was something. He was the most powerful man in the world at the time, and God, the sovereign God, said, I'm going to humble you. I'm going to humble you. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. I don't know if there's anything quite so scary as just losing your faculties. And the Bible says for seven years he lived as an animal. Think about this. I mean, he was insane. He lived as an animal. He would eat the grass. He would sleep in the grass. He just acted like an insane person. But after seven years, God gave him his mind back. Imagine that. And Nebuchadnezzar had a change of heart, you might say, after God put him, sent him to his room for seven years, if you will. He used to send me to my room. That was no fun. Nebuchadnezzar got sent to his room. He got put in the corner for about seven years. And he had a change of mind. Look at verse 34, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me. He got his mind back. And look what he said, this pagan king. And I blessed 
the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he hath done according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's the personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar after his encounter with God. Look at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. So here's what God did. God took his mind and took everything away, and he was like an insane animal, insane person living like an animal. At the end of seven years, God not only gave him back his mind and his understanding and his ability to reason, he gave him back his kingdom and everything that he had lost. That, dear friend, is a miracle in itself. Because if you've ever studied the palace intrigue of all these places, I mean, these kings were always getting killed and shivved and murdered and, and uh, someone trying to take their place. The fact that he lost his kingdom and got it all back is miraculous. And then look what he said, verse 37. He made this proclamation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase or to bring down. Nebuchadnezzar learned that firsthand, didn't he? He thought he was the stuff, and God said, I'm going to turn you into an animal. Then he gave him his reason back, and Nebuchadnezzar said, now I know I'm nothing. God's everything. And he can do whatever he wants. And dear friend, it's a good place in your life when you and I get to the place where we say, I'm nothing, you're everything, and you can do whatever you want. Sometimes we just got to take God off trial. Man, some people, every time God allows something in their life, they're like blaming God. How could God do this? How could he do this to me? Boy, if God did this, there may be someone in this room right now. You are blaming God for your misfortune. You're blaming God for some terrible thing that happened in your past. Dear friend, God's not the villain. He's the hero. He's the one that's given you health and strength and brought you to this moment and given you the mind with which you condemn him. Oh, it's a good day. A good day when you say, you're God and I'm not. I'm going to take you off trial. You know, my wife's been sick for 14 years. Do we like it? No. Do we want it to change? Every moment. Do we still pray about it? We've prayed thousands of times, and we'll pray thousands more. We also go to God and say, you're God. If you decide to allow this, it must be for some greater purpose. Just give us the strength and grace to bear it and bring you glory. See the difference? Some of you, God took a loved one. Maybe you're not happy about it. I'm here. I don't blame you at all. 
God's not the bad guy in the story. Even God. You had some tragedy in your past. Some difficulty came. Somebody did you wrong. See, there's always this battle, and we'll talk about it tonight. There's always this battle between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And people say, how could God let such bad things happen? But at the same time, they turn to the, to the Bible and to God and to the church and say, don't tell me what to do. So out of both sides of their mouth, out of one side of their mouth, they're saying, why don't you control everybody and keep these bad things from happening? And out of the other side of their mouth, they say, but don't tell me what to do. You can't have it both ways. So yes, God is sovereign, but God has allowed mankind to have a free will with real consequences. And sometimes your free will hurts me. And sometimes my free will hurts you. Make God the bad guy. It means God's the one we run to when we're hurt and he heals us and binds up our broken heart. God is sovereign. He possesses all power. He's the ruler of all things. Let me show you another verse. Look at Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter look at verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Folks, you don't need to look any further for a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and if you don't accept him, there is nobody else. Verse 12, I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. He's telling the Israelites, if anybody in the world knows I'm God, it's you. All the things I've done for you, all the things I've brought you through. And sometimes as Christians, boy, we can begin looking at all the bad that's happened and we forget all the good. If anybody in the world should know God is sovereign, it's the people in this room. We're his witnesses that he's good and kind, and loving, and gracious. Look at verse 13. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? The word let there is the old English word for hinder. I will work, and who shall hinder it? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Who's going to stop? So when we find ourselves to be fighting against God, it's a losing battle every time. Let me show you last verses. Not only is God sovereign, that means Jesus Christ is sovereign. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He did not begin existing when he was born in that manger, he had always existed. And the miracle of, of Christmas was that 
God took everything that Jesus is, everything that God the Son is, and wrapped him in human flesh. That's the miracle. He's always existed, and he always will exist. For a short time, he lived in a human body here on earth as the God-man. Acts 10.36 calls Christ Lord of all, just like Jehovah was called Lord of all. Look at John chapter 1. I'll show you two more verses and we'll be done. John chapter 1. Jesus Christ is sovereign. He's the pre-existent creator. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We spent a lot of time on this, I think it was last week, uh, talking about the Word, the Logos of God, Jesus Christ. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was Made. So Jesus Christ is the preexistent creator. Yeah. Folks, if, if you create it, then you get to set the rules. And he is the sovereign God. But not only is Christ the preexistent creator, let, re, let me remind you that Christ is the final judge. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and kingdom. You see, folks, Jesus Christ isn't just the preexistent creator. He's the judge of the world. When we're talking about God is sovereign, we look to Jesus Christ. The Bible says very clearly, God the Father, you understand the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. God the Father has relegated judgment to His Son. Jesus Christ, the Bible talks about in the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to be the one judging the world. So the very one who died on the cross to pay for our sins and made the way of salvation will be the one judging those who rejected him. Let me just encourage you today. If you're not born again, if you've never been saved, you're not sure you're going to heaven someday, Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He's the only one. There is nobody else. I talked to someone last week. Oh, I've studied all the world religions, and I've done this and that, and he's still looking. You know why? Because he's rejecting the only one. I told him, you can look as long as you want until you come back to Jesus and accept him. You're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be saved. One of the founding fathers, I believe it was John Adams, said he studied all the religions of the world in the Bible, and Christianity is the best. Jesus Christ is the Savior. I encourage you to trust Him. Let me say to my Christian friends here today, if you're a believer, you see all the craziness going on in the world, it feels like the world's falling apart, and in some ways it is. Never forget that God's still on the throne. He's still in control. 
everything's still okay. Well, it seems like, I know. What you're seeing, the, the throes that you're seeing in our nation and even in our world, is God allowing a nation to feel the consequences of telling God, we don't want you. We don't want you. And sometimes the best teaching is to step back and let someone feel what it's like when they get what they think they want. You ever have a child and something's hot? Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. And after the 37th time, you're like, all right, touch it. They touch it. Touch it. You know what? You're 37 times, they didn't get it. They touch it one time, and they're like, wow. Sometimes what you see when you feel like things are falling apart is God stepping back and saying, let me show you what it's like without me. Without my protection, without my provision. You know what's crazy in the world today? I'm not even talking about all the political stuff. All the, the manufacturing, the food manufacturing plants that have been burned down or offline. I think it's last time I heard 13 major food manufacturers in America that have had some either explosion or fire or whatever to take them offline. The money, inflation, the God of America, money is now not worth as much as it used to be. The crazy natural disasters, the political upheaval, the very people that say we don't want God are now in control and the, the country in, in less than a year and a half is like taking a nosedive, a plane falling to the earth. All of this stuff, you can look around and see all this stuff, but when you step back and put it in biblical context, it's God saying, how y'all doing? And I want to be one of those kids that I don't have to learn the hard way. I can watch you do something dumb and realize I don't want to do that. You know, when I was a kid, you always had these rednecks doing weird stuff. Hey, Bubba, you think I can jump off the barn roof and be okay? Let's see. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he falls off, breaks both ankles. Hey, you're not okay. Hey, I'm not going to do that. You know, we had uh, wired, barbed, wired, hot wire fences, you know, electrified fences to keep the cows in. And, you know, I'd be like, hey, how long do you think I can hold on to that for? I don't know, but I'll watch. You know, but I can hold it longer than you. I ain't touching it. You know, <clears throat> you know? one time a guy... A guy got stuck on there, and if you're not careful, that electricity, it's not enough to kill you, but it'll grab onto you. And you can't let go, because your, your, your hand or your leg or whatever will just kind of contract. And then if you grab hold of that guy to try to get him off, they kind of get caught by it. And so you got Bubba, you know, and then Jimmy John comes over. You know? And so you got this group of guys, that, and I don't need to be a part of that. And then one guy, you say, how do you get him off? One guy does a flying tackle and, like, just jumps in the air and knocks him off while he's in the air and goes rolling. And uh, they all get up and be like, hey, that hurt. You know, it's like, yeah, I told you it was going to hurt. I don't have to be the one grabbing the, the, the barbed wire fence. I don't have to be the one jumping off the roof. I can learn by watching. The Bible calls that a prudent man. <laughs> you know, the prudent sees the suffering and hideth himself. People just have to learn the hard way, don't they? 
And what we need to be praying for is during these difficult times, God's people keep their heads. And God's people keep their eyes on God. And then you're going to see people in this world, and you're already seeing it go, wow, this isn't the answer. This isn't working. What they need is people to say, let me tell you who always works. Let me tell you who saves. Let me tell you why America was great. And we point them to Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. We ask that you would give us... Great grace to go through these difficult days. It's scary times. But Lord, if we keep our eyes on you, we can know that you're still firmly seated on the throne. You're not worried about it at all. One of these days, in the appropriate time, you're going to step in and you're going to win the war of all wars with the simple words of your mouth. You're not going to have to break a sweat. You're going to have to swing a sword. You are that much in control. Help us to rest in that. Pray you'd help us to see people saved. They could put their faith in you and know you. Help us to comfort hearts and point people to you as they are concerned and worried about everything that's going on in this world. That you would give us the strength to stand strong. That we can help others through all this. And Lord, we do pray you send a revival. We ask, Lord, that you'd save America. We ask that you'd save sinners. We ask that you would help those who are turned against you. That dear lady we talked to yesterday, uh, boldly saying she's an atheist without even realizing what she's saying and the foolishness of the statement. Claiming these people claim to be people of science while they deny science at every turn. They're blinded. I pray you'd save them. And Lord, help us Christians to be strong and bold and and keep us free from sin and the temptations of this life and the, the worries and fears. Help us to remain strong so that we can point people to you. Help us see a lot of people saved. And Lord, there's going to come a generation where it's going to be the last one. And you're going to bring it all to a close. And I pray in that generation, You'll help those Christians, whether it be us or another, remain strong to the very end. We could see you having lived a life for you, a life of faith. Heads about, eyes are closed. Would you take just a moment, <clears throat> process what we've talked about this morning. Ask the Lord what he would have you to do with the information you've received. Are you saved? If you were to die right now, do you believe you'd go to heaven because you've been born again, or do you have some worries about it? Let us take a Bible and show you what it means to put your faith in Christ once and for all and be saved. Have your sins forgiven. Maybe you've been worried about the things going on in the world. You've been uptight. You've been watching the news, and you just um, the, the the unrest in your heart. Maybe today we just need to sit back and take a deep breath and remember that God's on the throne. He's in full control. Maybe there's someone you need to pray about. 